Well, last week we wrapped up Ephesians chapter 3 talking about this incredible prayer of Paul's where he really laid out for us in a vivid way God's ability, God's ability to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine. And whether God is working that way in your life, whether you're experiencing that abundance in your life, really is up to you. Because we control, in a sense, the valve that determines how much or how little God is working in our lives. If you're not asking, if you're not thinking of big, bold prayer requests, then how can God go measurably beyond it when you're not even starting at the first place? And so I encouraged you last week to write in this prayer bucket a bold prayer request, something that you'd really come before the Lord saying, God, I believe you're able to do this. And I don't know whether or not you'll do this, but I believe you can. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to be persisting. And if you read through um, Luke, if you're going through the reading with us this week, there was a great story that Jesus told about a persistent neighbor and who was answered and given something to give to his friend because he was persistent. And being persistent and, and asking bold prayers can lead to great uh, things in our lives. Well, there are other areas in our lives where we control that valve too, whether God's blessing is poured out to us or not. And I want to talk about that for the next few weeks. Normally in the fall, I always talk about stewardship at that season because of getting before Christmas, but I wanted to do it in the spring this year. And God really wants to do far more than we'd ever imagined in our lives in regards to our finances, if we'd understand what God's looking for in our lives. And so I'd like you to open up to Luke chapter 12. We're going to look at a story today that Jesus tells in there. But before we do, I want to I lay out before you some of the common things we hear about finances that I think are just flat out wrong. And though we hear them, we, we tend to even say them ourselves or nod our heads, I want us to really think about them because the first one's kind of tricky. It's this. You, you probably heard it. Money cannot buy happiness. Now, we'd all say, absolutely, Pastor, money doesn't buy happiness. But let me, let me show you something. This week, if you received in the mail a surprise check out of the blue from a distant relative who passed away and left you in their will, and it was a check for $1,000, would, would it give you a little bit more happiness that day? Come on. Come on, be honest. Yeah. And what if, what if that check was actually like $10,000? You'd probably be going, woo! Thank you, Lord. This is unbelievable, right? A lot of happiness popping up there. So let's not be foolish and say, I, I don't, I'm not any happier with m- money. doesn't make me happy. Yes, it does. Come on, be real. You get a bonus at work. You get a, a, a wage increase. Don't you go, yes. So money can contribute to happiness. Now, does it buy happiness in itself? No, but it contributes. It, it allows you to do more with your family. It allows you to enjoy some luxuries you didn't have before. It allows you maybe to eat a little bit better, wear nicer clothes. It, it allows you to give to other people and ministries. And so let's not, let's not be foolish and just say like, no, no, pastor, money doesn't buy happiness. I'm real spiritual. I know. No, money, come on, be honest. Money contributes to happiness. Here's another one that we often hear. That wealth is a sign of God's favor. There's actually some religious teaching about this, that, that God wants everyone to be rich. Now, I believe God causes people to prosper, but I don't believe God's plan is that every person become wealthy. If that were the case, Jeff Bezos of Amazon.com this week has reported he's, he's worth $124 billion, that he must be one of the most godly men in the world, right? Because if wealth is a sign of God's favor then truly the wealthiest, many who've gotten their money through honest ways, some unscrupulous ways. Some have really 
put down the workers to, to fatten their pockets. Some have engaged in criminal activities. Uh, sometimes I watch the show American Greed. You see all kinds of things people do to get wealth. And so just having wealth doesn't necessarily signify that God has favored you. In fact, some of the, some of the most spiritual people you'll ever meet won't appear wealthy in what they have. They will appear wealthy in how they look at their life. Here's, here's the opposite. We can go to the opposite extreme. You're more spiritual if you're poor. I mean, Jesus didn't even have a place to lay his head. Surely, if we want to be spiritual, we should be like Jesus, and we shouldn't own anything. And there are people, actually, who have this view. It's a very ascetic kind of perspective. But the truth is, neither poverty or riches is an indication of your spiritual life. Because, because you can be uh, very, very godly and rich, and you can be very godly and poor. You can be very ungodly and rich and very ungodly in poor. The truth is, what matters most of all is, is how you look at what you have and what you do with what you have. That's the bigger issue. What's going on in the heart? Then here's another one. Here's the last one I want to look at. You've probably heard this, that money is the root of all evil. That's actually in the Bible, but it's not the full verse. It's 1 Timothy 6.10, and the first part of that verse says, the love of money is the root of all evil root of all kinds of evil. People who sought after money, who love money, have, have done awful things. They've cheated people. They've taken advantage of people. Uh, they, they've abused people. And so the love of money can cause you to do some very dishonest, ungodly things. And that's his point, is, is the love of money can be very dangerous. That's what we have to guard against. In fact, that, that is what prompted Jesus to tell the story we're going to look at today. In Luke chapter 12. So if you, have a, if you have your Bible, I want you to follow along with me. Interestingly, this is the scripture reading for Luke tomorrow. If you're following along with reading through the gospel of Luke, this is our reading for tomorrow. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care. and Be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger or larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, this story was prompted by a man's statement. He saw his brother getting an inheritance, and very likely the the brother was the firstborn. And because he got the inheritance, not the younger brother, the younger one says, well, Jesus, tell my brother to share. Surely sharing is a good thing. And, And Jesus doesn't explain the details, doesn't express all the surroundings. Really, he just looks at that man's heart and says, be careful. Your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. In other words, your life is not all about what you have or what you get. It's about something much, much bigger. 
And that prompted Jesus to tell this story about this farmer. This farmer who, who had a bumper crop, who just had a phenomenal return at his farm, so much so that it filled his barns to overflowing, that he tore them down and built bigger barns so he could store up uh, more stuff. If, he was, if this story was told in modern-day terms, it would be like a man who bought stock, and the stock just continued to rise upward and to the right. It just kept getting better and better. And it, he finally reached a place where he said, you know what? I actually have enough to cover the rest of my life, so I'm just going to stop working, relax, and enjoy what I have. But what he didn't know was that night would be his last night. And he died. And Jesus said, now who's going to get what this man saved up for himself? And if you're not careful, you might read into the story that Jesus is opposed to the rich. That's not what he's pointing out. Because it wasn't his wealth that made him bad. It was, it was that the wealth exposed the, the, the darkness in his own heart. Wealth often does that. You really don't know someone's heart until they get a bunch of money, and then you finally find, finally find out what they're really like. There are a lot of people who win the lottery, live pretty quiet, simple lives, and it turned them into monsters. It's because money can expose the motives of the heart. So where did this man go wrong? What was his flaw? We could say that this man, in many ways, was very admirable. Hardworking, successful, thought forward, planned. We should all plan for the future. Where did he go wrong? Jesus doesn't use any of those words to compliment the man. Doesn't call him hardworking, doesn't call him successful, doesn't call him shrewd. You know what he calls him? Fool. Fool. This good man that in our culture would be considered a very wise man was considered a fool. Why was that? Well, I want to look at that because I believe that many of us are following in many of the same steps that this man did and how we look at the things that we have. And here are three ways that this man became foolish. First of all, he thought this, it's all mine. It's all mine. What shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? It's easy to think that what we have is ours, especially if you work for it. In fact, the more you work for it, the more you think it's yours. And we struggle with possessiveness from the time we're just little. We always have to tell our, our, our little ones when they have toys or they have food or snacks and they have a friend around, what are they supposed to do? Share. And the response you, you get oftentimes is no because this is mine. We just saw this in our, our grandson recently. I love the, the spirit of our grandson. When he was two, he, he, he wanted to help us do chores. So he would help with the dishes, feed the dog, a vacuum. He wants to break the eggs when I'm making omelets. He wants to do everything that we do. He wants to work out in the yard. He's not afraid to work. And so I decided a couple years ago, do you know what? I'm going to reward him for that. So I got him a little piggy bank, and I give him nickels, dimes, and, and pennies, and he puts those in his bank uh, when he does his chores. And after two years, that little piggy bank is, is filled to the top. There's actually no more room to even stuff a penny in there. And so Julie asked him the other day, said, Aiden, would you like to buy a gift for your new baby brother? We're expecting another grandson in about five weeks. And so he said, yes, he'd like to do that. So they went to the store along with his mommy, and he looked around for toys, and and they said, you can get a toy for yourself first. Well, that sounded really good. He got this big toy for himself and a little toy for his (laughs) baby brother. And his reason is because his little brother's going to be very little. He needs a little toy. They went up to the cash register, and uh, Julie said, so you have to give the lady your money. He said, I don't want to, because it's my money. And she says, no, in order for you to get those toys, you have to give her 
the money. And they almost had to pry his fingers open to start taking <laughs> the, the money out and start counting out, this is how much that the lady needs. And then uh, they went up to the car, put him in his car seat, and he just broke down. She said, what's wrong, buddy? What's wrong? He said, I missed my money. <laughs> Isn't that how? That's how we all feel. I admire parents who will give their kids a dollar or a couple quarters and say, hey, when your class takes up an offering, put that in the offering. And, and kids do that. They'll go to class, they'll put it in. I think it's much better to ask the kids, why don't you give God some money out of your allowance? Because you know the truth is, it is far easier to give someone else's money, mom and dad's money, than it is to give their money. But therein lies a key principle. If I think it's mine, it's going to be hard to let go of. It's going to be hard to let go of. That's the first problem this man had. And you know what was was interesting? The Bible actually says the land produced plentifully. The land. Well, who made the land? And, And what else has to happen? There's sunshine. There's water. Who did those things? Do you know what? A lot of people have gotten wealthy because they happen to be in the right piece of property or the right corner or the right market at the right time. It wasn't all about them. Now, I'm not downplaying the fact that people work hard. But a lot of people just happened to be the first in line, invented the thing before anybody else thought of it, invested in the stock before it went, you know, everyone else did, and they just got in the right place at the right time. And so they got blessed because of that with the financial reward. But don't discount the fact of what these other unknowns play and contributed to what you have. Here's a second problem. And oftentimes we we say this ourselves. We resolve, I'll decide what to do with my stuff. The man's barns were were packed to the gills, so he said, I'm going to build bigger ones. Here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. By the way, in those first two verses I've just repeated, he uses personal pronouns more than 12 times. My, me, I, it's all about me. It's all about my. It's my stuff. It's, it's, it's because it's my stuff. I get to decide what to do with my stuff. So what am I going to do? I'm going to tear down these barns because they're full. Perfectly good barns. I need to tear them down and build bigger ones. When you're rich, you can do that. You can tear down something perfectly good because you can afford to build something bigger. It's kind of like when we've all been at times like this. When you are so poor, you, you lick your plate. I mean, you're so poor, you're, you're getting every morsel off your plate as you can. Some of you are so poor, you'd go to Kentucky Fried Chicken to lick other people's fingers. I mean, just so, so poor. <laughs> Don't think about that too long. But really, we would, we would finish our plates because we didn't know how much we'd have in the future. But when you're rich, you can, you can eat half a sandwich and throw the rest away. And you can tear down good barns. Because I can afford to build bigger ones. It's not a big loss to me because I can recover what I just lost. It seems crazy that he would tear down those barns. Instead of thinking as mine, you know what, my barns are full. Maybe I should start giving it away to the poor. I've got plenty for myself and I've got a good income. Let me give it away. That didn't even cross his mind. He thought it was all for him. And while we think it's crazy, he would do that, I want to share with you where the craziness hits us. Because there's, not, there's probably not a person in this room that at some time hasn't said, I wish I had a bigger house. I wish I had a bigger house. When I was born in 1960, and in 1960, uh, we had eight, actually, 
it was 1963, my second daughter, our, our second younger sister was born. So by 1963, there were eight of us living in a three-bedroom home with one bathroom. That's the house I grew up in as a child. And the typical house, let me show you a graph. In 1960, the typical size American home was 1,289 square feet. Average size family was three and a third people. So we go to 20 years later, 1980, we've grown, the houses have grown 34% in size. Now it's 1,740 square feet, and the family's actually gotten smaller. 20 years later, another 30% growth. Homes are 2,266 square feet, and the family's gotten a little bit smaller. And guess where it is right now? Well, pretty close to now. 2014, 2,657 square feet, another 17% increase, two and a half kids. And yet, it's pretty common today, this is what I need right here. That's what I need. You see how our minds get distorted by our culture? And it hits every area of life, shoes, clothes, uh, cars, electronics. Do you know that 100 years ago, the things we, we have were space age back then? They were the things that only rich people even dreamed of, and yet the average person today can hold one of these. And we are so spoiled in so many ways in what we think is, is normal, what we think is I've got to have just to survive. But your parents, your grandparents, 40, 50, 60 years ago, they were pretty happy with the homes they had. And so just, where do we put, what I'm just saying is, where do we put the lid to say, my barns are big enough? And our, our, not only are our houses filled, every room's filled with furniture, we have, a, we have a whole industry called storage unit industry to store the stuff we don't have room for in our houses. And we have a whole bunch of thrift stores to sell our excess stuff that's pretty good still. I mean, when I was a kid, I, don't, I don't, can't even remember where the Goodwill store was. Now we have the Ark and Goodwill and Salvation Army and... Just all kinds of, because we have so much stuff. And so that's, that's the danger. I'm going to decide what I'm going to do with my stuff. And we will make foolish financial decisions if we're the only one we're consulting. Thirdly, he had the anticipation that I'll enjoy my stuff for a long, long time. It's my stuff. I've earned it. I'm going to decide what to do. And what I, one of my decisions is I'm going, to, I'm going to pack up enough so I can then relax and enjoy it for a long, long time. Except the one thing he couldn't plan on was how long his body would hold out. And rather than many years, he had many minutes, and it was over. And Jesus said, now who's going to get what he saved up for himself? I have an aunt who's in her 90s, Aunt Louise. Aunt Louise likes to go to uh, uh, country dance clubs in her 90s. She'll dance with some young guy in his 70s. And, 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 you know, she's a... She's a real, she's a spry 90-some-year-old woman, and she's enjoying life. But you know what, 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 what saddens her heart is when she was in her 50s, uh, her husband, my uncle Erling, died of a heart attack. And they had planned in his late 50s to have him retire, and they were going to travel and do all these cool things together. And they never got to do them together. She's been a widow for 40 years because they didn't know how many days he was going to get. You know, you and I don't know whether we have tomorrow. There's an elder in our church, Barry Dotson. I'll see him in prayer on Thursday mornings, and I'll say, Barry, I'll see you Sunday. And he goes, Lord willing. I went, what, what do you mean, Lord willing? You'll be there. He's here today. Uh, um, but, the, but the fact is he's being very sensitive to the fact that if God wants me to be here, I'll be here. If he calls me home, I won't be here. 
And the Bible says we're actually to live life with that readiness, that at any moment we're, we're ready to say, hey, I've lived a full life, I've lived in a way that I'm pleased with, and I'm ready to go home. This man didn't live that way. He thought that these would be the years that he would really enjoy for himself and, uh, and catch up. Maybe he thought he'd do something for God in those years, but he didn't get a chance to do it. This is not a teaching against planning for the future or planning for your retirement. Those are all wise things to do. In fact, we have a seminar that we're offering free to our church. Another organization's coming in, and they're going to offer it free in a couple of weeks. Most Americans don't have wills. And if you don't have a will prepared, you could lose a lot of your assets. And so this seminar will educate you on the difference between a will and a living trust. Now you can protect things for you and your family in a living trust. I encourage you, if you don't have a will, to come and at least be informed of what's available. There's information in your bulletin about that. But here's one thing that I think we need to learn. And Ron Blue, Christian advisor, a financial advisor, would say this often. Do your giving while you're living so you're knowing where it's going. That, that if God has given you resources, don't wait until you die for someone else to make decisions for you or someone else to get the joy of watching it get distributed. That's where a lot of the happiness comes from, is being able to use what God has given for his purposes even now on earth. Jesus says, this is how it will be for anyone who lays up treasure for themselves and is not rich toward God. Again, Jesus is not condemning the rich. I personally don't have a problem when, when rich people get tax breaks. We all like tax breaks. I think everyone should get more of their money back from the government. The, the, the issue is, what do we do with what we have? Or maybe even before that, how do we get what we have? Because we should be faithful stewards with what God has given us. It's not what we have, but what we do with what we have, how we see what we have. And Jesus told this parable because he was attacking an issue in a man's heart, guarded against covetousness. It's so easy to look at what you have and say, you know, I kind of like what I have. And then you hear someone else say, yeah, you should see what I have. Someone shows you their new truck and you go, oh my goodness. I thought I had a nice car, but that guy's got a truck that could die for. Some gal comes around and says, let me show you the ring I got from my husband. And the big sparkly thing on top. And you go, really? I'm kind of embarrassed with mine now. And someone else has, a, has a, the newest cell phone. And, and you go, man, I, I thought mine was great, but I really want what you have now. And it's so easy to be envious of what other people have. That's why Jesus said, guard yourselves against it. The 10th commandment is do not envy. And so there's a, Jesus is just saying, watch what's going on in your heart. So how do we guard against that? What do we do that's different from what this man did. I think we just reverse each of those statements. For example, this. A smarter way to deal with our resources is to say it's all God's. Recognize it all comes from him. Jesus told many, many parables of a man who'd go on a journey and entrust his stuff with his servants. And he'd come back and say, how'd you do with what I gave you? It, it was always his stuff, but they were stewards. That's what stewardship is. That's what we're talking about. What do I do with the stuff God has entrusted to me? It's really not mine It's his. He's allowed me to manage it for him. David in the Old Testament desired to build a temple for God. Now, up to that point, the Israelites had a tabernacle, which was a big tent, portable tent that they would put up and they could take down and move to different places. And David said, we need a permanent place. And we need a place that's fitting for our God. So he had in his heart to build God this this glorious temple, but he didn't get to build it. God said, David, your hands have shed blood. You will not build it, but your son Solomon will. And yet David still was committed to the project. So in 1 Chronicles 29, it says that David gave generously, just 
He gave all kinds of gold and silver and various things to help with the construction of the temple. And then other leaders stepped up and they gave. Heads of families gave. Officials gave. They gave. All this came in so they could build this temple for God. And then David offered a prayer to the Lord. And in this prayer, among the many words David spoke were these. Both riches and honor come from you. David recognized that what he gave was simply a reflection of what God had given him in the first place. God, it all came from you, so it's easier for me to give when I recognize it's yours. Psalm 50, verse 10 says, Every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. When you see everything you have as belonging to God, you know what you do? You hold it more loosely. You start to ask, God, what do you want me to do with what you've given me? Recognize, first of all, it's all God's. I was reading an article on, on tithing this week, and 60% of tithers started giving that way when they were teenagers or in their early 20s. In fact, it's harder the longer you wait to commit to the discipline of tithing. And that's why it's, it's so important that the earlier we recognize the fact that God is the giver of all things, the, 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 the better we are. Here's a young couple in our church. It's Nathan and Megan Huvera. Uh, to share how they've come to the conclusion to honor God in this way. So watch the screen. I, I just kind of grew up tithing. My mom taught me, you know, you tithe 10% at least. And um, as I got older, that, that continued into my life. And then I grew up, um, my dad, my parents were divorced. And so my dad, when I was with him, I saw him tithing on, on Sundays in the church. I saw him drop the check as the tithe went by. And then when I lived with my mom, I never actually saw them tithe. And actually, as I got older, when we tithe, the conversation had come up with my mom and my stepdad. And they viewed tithe as, that's the pastor's check. That's the check that pays for his new house. That's the check that buys him the newest cars. And so they were against tithing. And so I never understood why we should tithe. tithe. And I knew that it was important. I just didn't understand why it was important. We do this because it's not ours to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. it's, it's God. So we're just trying to be good stewards of what he gives us and put our faith in him that we can live off of 90% or less of our income um, after tithing. Mm-hmm. When we do sit down and we look at the budget and see what all the bills have to come out and then realize we do still need to tithe, it's hard because sometimes that amount can cover another bill. And it leaves us with that extra amount that, like, would be nice to have for groceries or something, you know. So that part makes it difficult. But as he said, every time we've done it, we've seen God's faithfulness through it. He always provides. There's never a time when we don't have enough to pay for the bills. There's never a time when we don't have enough to buy the groceries because he does remain faithful in that when we do tithe and give back what what part of it is his. When we take it out first thing, it always makes it easier. Yes. (laughs) When we kind of leave it for the last thing, then you're like, okay, we have this much left. By the way, we still have to tithe. (laughs) Um, So when you get it done first thing, it makes it a lot lot easier. (laughs) I think tithing has impacted um, our relationship with God in that through tithing, like I said before, he always proves himself faithful. And I want to say it's Malachi 3.10. He, he says that this is the one way that we can test him, that bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and see if he's not faithful to bless you beyond what you can hold. Mm-hmm. And we've seen this time and time again where it's not even always finance financially, but with um, community, with just peace, with 
and a lot of times with finances, we find that we're able to do things that we really don't understand how were we were able to save that up and pay for this or do that. And the only way I can credit it is God. And I, you know, I'm not saying it's 100% because of tithing, but he does say test him in this and, and see if he's not faithful. And he's proven himself faithful every time. And when we give, he gives us so much more in return. You know, one of the reasons why we do an offering every week is kind of like communion. Communion, we, we just never want to forget what Jesus did, his sacrifice for us on the cross. And the, the reason we do an offering every week, and I know some people get paid monthly or every other week, but the reason we do is just to keep it before us all the time. God is the source. God is the source. God is or Everything we have comes from him. This is a way I acknowledge that he is the source of it all. The second thing that we can do to be wise in how we manage our uh, finances is to follow his wise orders for managing his stuff. I mean, if it is God's stuff, surely you'd think, well, God's going to instruct me, and he does. There are actually more verses in Scripture about managing possessions and riches than about faith, about prayer. In fact, four times as many. It's as if God says, you know what, I know this is an area that's very practical for you, an area that you're going to struggle with. Let me be abundantly clear what my wisdom is in this area. We have a course in our church called um, Financial Peace University, or FPU. It's a course that was originated with Dave Ramsey, and Tom Downing, one of our elders, teaches that course, uh, facilitates that course on Wednesday nights. It just started last Wednesday. If you're interested, you can jump on board with that class coming this next Wednesday. But it's a great class for learning biblical principles for managing finances. And so many people have come through that uh, feeling like, you know what, they finally have a grip on things. They finally feel like they have some peace in their lives. And they finally feel like they're heading in the direction. They're seeing God bless them because of the tough decisions they're making to get out of debt, to honor God first, to save up for the future, all these things. Some things we'll talk about next week in more detail. But when you follow God's directions, God blesses um, what he has given us. Some advice you'll hear isn't the typical advice you'll hear from other people. You may not have gotten this from your parents, may not get it from your economic classes, but things like this will pop up. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. That's a good admonition for all of us. Work honestly, work hard. But here's one of the reasons, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. One of the reasons we work, why we work, is to provide for families. But another reason is so we can be a blessing to other people. That's part of God's wisdom. So God has blessed us in a number of ways, and we either look at ourselves as reservoirs or rivers. A reservoir is a place of collection, a place where things accumulate. We can either look at all the stuff that God gives us and saying, hey, that's mine. I just need to build a bigger barn, a bigger reservoir to hold all that God has given me. Or I have the mindset of a river that says, you know, God is channeling things through me to another destination point. God is using me as his conduit to be a blessing to other people. And I believe scripture shows that God wants us to be rivers, not reservoirs. And then thirdly, seek to please him more than anything else. Here's where the man went wrong. It wasn't that he was rich. You can be poor and foolish. You can be rich and foolish. Both ways by failing to acknowledge God. See, he was not rich toward God. I know exactly what that means in that passage. 
but it's clearly he failed to acknowledge God as the source, failed to um, look at God's wisdom and what he did, and the conclusion was he failed to be rich toward God. You may think, Pastor, man, if I was rich like that, I could be rich toward God, but it's not a matter of what you have. It's what you do with what you have. Do you know one of the, one of the most admirable stories in Scripture that Jesus told about someone managing their possessions was the, the widow that came to the temple in Luke Chapter 21, Jesus looked and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. You know, one of the other statistics that amazed me was people actually give less percentage the more they make. Now that seems real odd. That, that people who are in the lower income brackets give more percentage-wise than people at the higher income brackets, which seems so bizarre because no matter how much the people in the upper level give, give they have far more that they still hold on to than other people. And yet, here's the danger. The more we make, the more we start thinking, it's my money, it's my stuff, and I'll acknowledge God, but it's still all mine, and it's dangerous. When you're poor, it's easier to say, like, God, you know what? All I have is from, is, is from you, and I'm going to acknowledge you in what I have. And so this woman was, was admirable in her poverty. God is eternal, and what he values are things that are eternal. And you can look around this room. You can look at the, the speakers and the drum cage. They're temporary. You can look at the screen, the podium, carpeting. A lot of this stuff's going to wear out. It's going to get old. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be replaced. There's only one thing in this room that's eternal. You know what it is? It's people. It's people. It's the only thing you see in this room that's eternal. Now, there are invisible things. Of course, God's eternal. Love is eternal. The Bible says love's going to go on forever. We'll be loving forever. Everything else is going to pass away, but love will endure forever. You know what else is forever? God's word. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will remain forever. You got God's word. You got God's love. You got people. If you invest love and God's word into people, they will get to be with the eternal God forever. Here's how you're rich toward God. Invest yourself, invest your life, invest your resources in what's eternal. This week, Billy Graham passed away, 99 years old. I didn't know this, but Billy Graham died a pretty wealthy man. It's estimated his estate was worth $25 million. But if you looked at Billy Graham's life, you would not think of him as a rich man. Grew up as a poor farm boy, milked cows at three in the morning before he went to school. He gave his life toward preaching the gospel to the lost around the world. He lived a very simple life, lived in a very uh, humble home. He poured his life into that which was eternal. You know what Billy Graham did? He filled the barn in heaven so full they had to build bigger ones. Bigger ones to put all the people who've come to know the Lord because of his ministry. Who knows? Thousands, tens of thousands, maybe millions of people attribute their beginning of their relationship with God to the ministry of Billy Graham. My wife and I had a privilege of going to his farm back in October, and I saw the piece of land where his wife is buried. It's just a flat tombstone laying on the grass. It's not a big monument. It's tucked away in a bunch of trees. little piece of sod with a tombstone for his wife. And then next to it was an empty spot that this week will be filled by the casket of Billy Graham. You know, he's only the fourth private citizen to be recognized and to lay in state at the Capitol Rotunda. I don't know if there'll ever be someone like him again. But I do know this. 
his life was invested in what's eternal. That's what wise people do. Wise people orient their lives around what is eternal. And God values more than anything else you and me and the people around us. And he wants you to be with him forever. The stuff you have, the stuff you make, the place you live, the vehicle you drive, all that's going to pass away one day. But you're going to live somewhere forever. Where's it going to be? You don't know when. You don't know how. But you can know where. You spend eternity making a decision for Jesus. If you don't know him as Lord and Savior, here's what you do. Just like Tammy did today, you humbly admit that you've broken God's laws, that you failed God, that you're, you're a sinner in need of grace. Believe that Jesus died on the cross, was raised from the dead, paid for your sins. Confess him as Lord of your life. Decide to live the surrendered life for him. Be baptized as a statement that your life no longer is about you, but is about Jesus. Your life is dead. It's been buried. Now you're living for him.